Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We've had a productive morning with Edward Morris of Citigroup talking about various and sundry on oil. Ed, uh, to get started here, and I know Francine's got some other themes to speak of as well, there is this word in economics, elasticity, or the responsiveness of oil. With the new technology and with American oil, with shale and all the rest, fracking and all that, what is our elasticity of American supply of oil? How different is it from our ute? Well, if you look at... at, uh Deep water projects, it takes 10 years from the time you decide to explore if you're successful and, uh, and then uh, produce oil from the deep water. Uh, shale, particularly now that we have significant infrastructure in the producing basins, is really a six-month to nine-month lag. So uh, you, you make a decision to drill, you get everything together, you hedge it out, and we ought to talk about the hedging part of it. Um, and, and six months later, oil comes out of the ground. So how do you hedge it? Let's get right to it. So uh, there's massive hedging that's taking place. I wouldn't be surprised when the data come in that the fourth quarter would have seen the largest amount ever. uh, And the producers have a $50 trigger point. Uh, We can talk as much as we want about uh, break-even prices. $50 brings the producers into hedge, uh, and they hedge a lot. And then it doesn't really matter where the price of oil is going for the next two years. But that always, always, always ends ugly. When you overhedge in commodities, there's a point where it's great, 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 great. Oops. This is a cyclical business. <laughs> and the turning points happen faster than you think. They're hard to plan on. You've got, particularly in the U.S., 10,000 independent producers making independent decisions of one another. They may be independent, but it is a herd mentality at work. Uh, and there's no mastermind orchestrating all of this, and it's really hard to turn it off once it, gets, once, once it really gets turned on and going. Ed, will U.S. crude stockpiles change under Trump's administration because of his energy policy? (laughs) Well, ironically, U.S. crude stockpiles are on the way down in terms of strategic stocks. That started in the Obama administration. It's likely to continue in the Trump administration. You simply don't need 700 million barrels of oil in inventory uh, in order to ward off an emergency when you're moving towards self-sufficiency and maybe even the U.S. becoming a net hydrocarbon exporter and in that a net oil exporter. So strategic stock policy may have an, uh, an overhaul uh, before the end of this administration. The administration does have an energy policy. It's more, 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 more with less environmental yeah. control. Does Mexico have an energy policy, or is it just triage month to month, quarter to quarter? They have a dual energy policy. One is to streamline Pemex and get it to be competitive. Hard to do given uh, the amount of labor they have to employ under uh, various national programs. So it's hard to to tame a state monopoly other than depriving it of cash. And they deprived yeah. it of cash, and they've invited foreigners in 
to orchestrate new supplies. Yeah. So that's a big change in and, policy. And Francine, the, the, the backdrop of this for our global audience is not one but two Trump cabinet secretaries are in Mexico City as we speak. The Secretary of State and the Secretary of Homeland Security. Remarkable. Yeah, it's absolutely remarkable. Ed, you're probably one of the most optimistic when it comes to the oil price. What do the bears get wrong? Well, the bears may get timing wrong. Uh, we are uh, entering a just new world uh, of oil where, uh, where we're getting incremental supply from countries that used to be massive importers of supply from other parts of the world. We're having changes in the demand structure of the world. The growth of production from Brazil, from Canada, and the U.S. over the past uh, seven years, even with the U.S. falling back as part of the short cycle nature of response to low prices. But these three countries have transformed the Atlantic Basin from being a supply deficit arena to a supply, supply surplus arena, one that is moving oil as we speak to the Far East. Uh, and this is a big challenge for all other oil-producing countries, whether Russia or whether Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're seeing uh, only one place in the world where demand is growing, and it's a very enhanced competitive market. A, a truce that's been called between the OPEC and non-OPEC countries mm -hmm. can't last long when we're going to see more North American, South American, Atlantic Basin crude heading into the Pacific Basin. And you don't think you're underestimating the impact and the strength of shale? I don't know if it's ever possible. I know they're bitty and they have different break-even points that all of these shale producers actually come together to really form some kind of force. Well, you know, we were all talking earlier about, uh, uh, about where oil prices are in real terms. Uh, the, uh, the remarkable feature of the market is that after a five to 10 year period of unbelievable cost inflation, we're seeing cost deflation at work. Uh, costs of production have, uh, have dramatically fallen. Let me give you one good example. Please. There's this Johan Svedra project in Norway, discovered, made uh, 10 years ago. It was called off by Statoil, the operator, in 2014 when they saw that the break-even full <coughs> cost accounting price was $60 a barrel. They relaunched it in 2016, saying last winter that the, the break-even price has come down to substantially below 40. In the late spring, they said it was 30. In this past fall, yeah. 25. So going from 60 to 25 is an incredible example of cost deflation. And we don't see much on the horizon to reverse that anytime soon. Well, let me read the script here. You mentioned uh, Norway and to help our London audience. Good morning to all of you in London listening on Bloomberg uh, Radio. Give us an update on North Sea Oil. I remember sitting in Edinburgh with Alex Salmon of the SMP, and he's got some oil abilities and his work at RBS years ago. And there was a North Sea story 10, 15, 20 years ago. Is there a North Sea story for 2020? Uh, probably the North Sea will still be there, and it may well be that they're going to be producing more than they are today. The project that I talked about when it starts up in 2019 is expected to deliver 660,000 barrels a day of oil equivalent, mostly oil, a little bit of gas. That's not going to be the only uh, offshore rough water project that's going to start up, because once you get one, then the, then the play is open to others. So uh, North Sea is not going to go away. It doesn't play the role it played uh, at the beginning of the century, but uh, it's still an important one. 
Ed, I know you see oil between 40 and $65 this year. Is there a danger that if they pull back, a lot of these oil majors, if they're pulling too much back on investment, that we then see oil shoot back up to 100 two, three years from now? Yeah, well, 45 to 60 is really, 65 is really a five-year horizon, not a this-year horizon. I wouldn't be surprised if there were a sell-off in the market given the length of um, managed money in the market today. I wouldn't be surprised to see prices falling to 50 or 49 for a few instances, but we're not going to see that kind of price volatility this year, we don't imagine. No. Uh, that's, the, that's more in the distance. And saying that, if OPEC really were trying to destroy the non-OPEC market, what they should do is work for a world of enhanced volatility, not stability. You want volatility to stop the CapEx from coming into the market. Stability is their stated friend, but it's their worst enemy. Edward Morse with us. I know Francine in London wants to go to OPEC. I agree with her strongly on this. If you were to write the acclaimed Ed Morse article for Foreign Affairs magazine, and I'm going to give you the title of it. We're going to go to Baroness Thatcher. Expect the Unexpected. So that's the title of your article for CFR and Foreign Affairs magazine. What's the expect the unexpected in the oil business when you look at OPEC and non-OPEC? Well, I think the unexpected is that OPEC and non-OPEC won't be uh, terms that are going to be useful in explaining anything. We're moving toward a world in which there are three giant oil-producing countries, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Russia. And the interplay geopolitically among the three of them and with markets, I think, will be the most significant set of factors uh, in the market over the next 10 years. Ed, what do we misunderstand about OPEC? I remember covering it 15, 16 years ago, and these guys used to arrive at the Intercontinental in Vienna. They used to say one thing, and the market would shoot up or go down by $3. Will they ever regain that again? They've regained it a little bit, only because they drove out a million two hundred thousand barrels a day of U.S. production. Uh, they wanted to drive out more. They didn't succeed in doing that. The pain got great enough that, uh, in one last gasp, they orchestrated a 24-country agreement. That, in itself, by definition, is fragile. You can't have a 24-country agreement in a world where the market is really increasingly competitive. And I think the big difference for OPEC is not just the rise of competition from outside on a permanent basis, but also transparency. OPEC could rule the roost when the world wasn't transparent, when you didn't know really how much oil was going to be produced, uh, when you had to rely on the rhetoric of key OPEC countries, and the world just gotten too transparent. The world knows whether OPEC and non-OPEC countries are agreeing. They can track vessels at sea. They can look at loadings from uh, satellites that are orbiting the planet. Um, and they don't control the flow of information any longer. Do they no longer cheat? And, I, and if it is, does it smell of desperation? Well, if they, quote, cheated, uh, the world would know it. Uh, they have a production agreement. You can measure supply. Uh, cheating is uh, more critical when countries can cheat than when they can't cheat. So one of the factors in this agreement is that uh, basically nobody can add more production to the market. We had significant growth of some 650,000 barrels a day from Iraq in, 20, in 2015. We had 800,000 barrels a day from Iran in 2016. And actually, inventories didn't budge very much. They grew between 2014 and the beginning of 2016 by a huge amount, a good 600 million barrels of crude oil, petroleum products, natural gas liquids. 
that that number came down a bit in 2016, despite the the no OPEC non OPEC agreement and despite uh, an added 800,000 barrels a day from Iran. Right. But nobody's and there to add a lot to this market. Right. Can actually OPEC regain control even if Russia doesn't play ball? Uh, the short answer to that is would really be hard. The higher price that you get, uh, the less control they have over the rest of the world. And that would include Russia. And Russian, Russian production, the Saudis anticipated uh, when they went uh, into a market share strategy in 2014, they thought that uh, Russia was going to see a 300 to 500,000 barrel a day decline. So did the right. Russian government. And Russian production <clears throat> kept growing. Let me get one more question in here, bring it back to Oklahoma. T. Boone Pickens, out front with the T. Boone Pickens plan on natural gas. Can T. Boone's Pickens prosper with net gas transportation in an Ed Morse world? <laughs> the problem with uh, that T. Boone Pickens confronted is that, well, he thought that natural gas prices would be competitive with oil prices. He thought they were both going to be higher. So uh, the Pickens plan was based effectively on a high carbo hydrocarbon price environment yeah and we're not seeing that we're seeing u.s nat gas as even more abundant than u.s oil and uh, the u.s is growing it's already gone from being where the expectations when the pickens plan came into effect was uh that the u.s gas market was going to remain tight and we've got in in appalachia of all places if Appalachia were an independent area, it would be the third largest natural gas producing country in the world. That's a, unreal. It's unreal. A big difference. And under Trump, Trump, building pipelines will get that gas in increasing volumes yeah. into the market. More than generous. Ed Morris, thank you so much for Citigroup, folks. That was fabulous. The idea of, yeah, oil prices nudge up. But earlier, Ed Morris suggesting that uh, getting back to 1968 real oil valuations is a tangible and feasible thing. That was wonderful. Ed Morris of Citigroup. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. It is Always a good time to speak with Michael Mayo on banking, but it is particularly appropriate on this perfect spring day with CLSA because there is a bank reset going on. Uh, Mike, to get my attention, uh, J.P. Morgan shares 86-ish, and you would suggest a 20% plus pop to 102 out in the vicinity. What will be the catalyst for Mr. Diamond to mint more money? Well, Tom, as you know, we call J.P. Morgan the LeBron James of banking because they're good at both offense and defense. J.P. Morgan, really for the last decade through the financial crisis, has gotten the job done through defense, and we think they're on the cusp of showing greater offense after showing flat revenues this decade. Well, we think those are poised to increase one-fourth <clears throat> over the next three years. I mean, Mike, within this, and this is critical, folks, is and this is what Mayo is so good at. He can go granular on individual stocks, and then look at the industry as well. Are we set now for a tangible book ratio reset? where finally we get a jump condition in book valuations of the various banks? Well, that's a great question, Tom. And I know you're a CFA, so you asked the right questions. Uh, but it's not so much, a, it's back to the future. We're not you know, paving new ground here. This is just going back to where banks historically have been 
when they've created value, when they've had double-digit ROEs, and that's where banks are likely to head. Mike, what looks cheap right now? I'm looking at a price-to-book ratio for uh, S&P Financial, the sector there, compared to European stocks. I mean, you guys are way above us. Uh, you know, the big difference is U.S. banks are likely to create value that, in financial terms that generate returns above the cost of capital, where that's less true for the European banks. And that makes all the difference in the world. That's our whole theme. Our theme is back in black, meaning banks are on the doorstep of creating value. And when you create value, you have another different valuation than banks that don't create value. Right. So how do they change that? Uh, how do they change the... How do they start creating value? Well, you create value two ways. Number one is you improve your returns. And we think the U.S. banks will improve the returns through the... Um, you know, over half the business, that's traditional lending. Higher interest rates are very good, maybe a, an acceleration in loan growth. And the other half of the business, a little bit more of a risk on when it comes to capital markets. The other way to create value, which I think is very underappreciated, is to reduce your risk. And banks have increased their risk, especially in the United States, where the balance sheets are the strongest in a generation. And so better returns for less risk also right. deserves a higher valuation. But money is still cheap. With the good view of Michael Mayo, with tangible book expansion, with the enthusiasm over the Trump bump, as you write in your research report, is it time for dinosaurs mating? Is this where the regional banks become less regional and we get more super regionals below the too big to fails? Well, you frame the question correctly. The largest banks are prohibited from buying other banks. So you don't have acquisitions with Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Bank America, and Wells Fargo. Certainly below that top level, there's the potential for additional acquisitions. And the benefit of acquisitions is scale. And I do think on the retail banking side, you are seeing the benefits of scale. Look at Bank America. Bank yeah. America has a level of deposit transactions through mobile devices equal to over 800 branches. You could separate that out and you have your own regional bank just with mobile banking. That's brilliant. I mean, within that, Mike, and this is, that's a brilliant observation, the idea of a, of a digital bank within a traditional bank goes back to the further technological advancement here. I'm going to ask the question I've asked you 14 times. When do the branch banks go away? They're all, I mean, near the Pierre Hotel here, there's five banks on one corner. I don't know how you do that, but they do it in New York. When's it? When's it disappear? Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. I mean, ever since uh, my my kids they don't even like it. ever since they changed a, uh, you know, an ice cream store into a bank branch, uh, they they realize exactly. this. There's 87,000 branches in the United States. We think that gets reduced by 10,000 over the next several years. But if you had a level similar to the 1950s, that would instead of being 87,000, be 52,000. Uh, but as customers have greater acceptance of mobile banking, which they're doing. I mean, this is a, a tipping point. You are going to see banks close more branches. You've seen several announcements. The one laggard on those branch closures is Wells Fargo, which is hanging out there with 6,000 branches compared to, um, you know, Bank America, which is, you know, one-fourth less. Mike, I don't know how old your kids are, so I don't know if uh, they'll bank with the city or Bank of America or any of those. But when are we going to see a Facebook bank or, or one of these names that actually speak to millennials? And can they f go through it with regulation and actually get market share? You know, there's been a lot of talk. Um, think back to the 1990s when it's, it was, uh, you know, clicks for bricks and you had Internet hype at that time. It got a little excessive at the time. And who's going to dethrone the banks? But I think the winners with digital banking 
it's going to be the major banks. And by the way, if you have a small startup that's doing well, a large bank's probably going to buy them. And you're seeing that the traction with the large banks right now. So, and you are seeing millennials uh, bank with some of the larger banks. It doesn't mean that startups can't get, you know, those customers who are disenfranchised with the large banks, or doesn't mean startups and smaller players, you know, can't get the crumbs. But the winners in digital banking, it's it's an easy call. It's going to be the largest banks. They they have the technology budgets to spend or or even buy some people. Right, give me names. It's not. It can't be all oh, the large brutal. banks, right? You're, you're ruthless. I know. So European, eh, Tom? <clears throat> yeah. Well, no. In, in retail banking, you're seeing traction. Uh, you know, at a Bank of America. I mean, it, it's happening in front of us, and the cost to deliver has, has declined. Um, and so, I think J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo. I mean, th- these are the the big banks getting it done for retail banking. Mike, help me here. With free, I mean, well, I guess operating income. It's a terrible story of woe, folks. Coming out of Lehman, two, uh, excuse me, five billion free cash flow at Bank of America. Now it's only twenty-four billion. It's gone from five billion to twenty-four billion. We've got it modeled at Bloomberg out to thirty billion a few years uh, out. What are they going to do with all that cash? Is it a double-digit dividend grower for some of these cash generators? Uh, we see total capital return, and that would be dividends and buybacks, fair, fair. increasing uh, for the industry from $70 billion to over $100 billion over the next three to four years. So the pace of capital That's return unreal. at banks is going to be one of the most uh, highest paces among yeah. major industries. I mean, I mean, folks, and to be clear here, Mr. Mayo couldn't say there yet, Tom, it's going to be double digit because his compliance people would gouge his eyes out. But I'll say it for you, 70 to 100 over a worst case five years. Mike, it gets you out near double digit, doesn't it? Well, no, and we we can certainly say it's in our, our research, Tom. And so double digit growth and return of capital at banks over the next four years. At the same time, okay. you have better expense control by controlling <clears throat> branches. At the same time, right. you have accelerating top-line growth. Michael Mayo, single best buy, please. You know, we're still going with Citigroup because it's been a laggard. Uh, you asked a few minutes ago, you know, what's cheap? They're certainly cheap. Uh, they're restructuring. They're mo- not moving as quickly as they should. Yeah. Um, so we're going to keep the pressure on them, Tom. We'll go to the annual meeting. But they should have the biggest increase in ROE over the next four years. Michael Mayo, thank you so much with CLSA uh, on American uh, Banking. Boy, Francine, is that a different discussion than what you and I have with uh, the banking staffing of continental Europe and the United Kingdom? It is. It's it's almost night and day because in Europe we just need to, you know, keep at it, overhaul, change, boost capital to make sure that we're in a strong position like the yeah. U.S. But then, but then a lot of people say, look, European banks look cheap. I go back to what David Rubenstein said with great force at Davos on the nationalism of European banking. Uh, that, was yeah. a real, that was a real tangible moment. Yeah, and I know you're, you're very right. focused on M&A, but it's difficult when you have one regulator who doesn't want to take systemic risk on. Exactly. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. And joining us, it has been way too long since we had a conversation with the king of granularity, John uh, Herman. John, let's do two topics today. Yes, Tom. The yield curve, which I'll get to in a second. And then Francine and I will talk about GDP. Okay, sounds uh, good. With you. 
the yield the yield curve, which I've showed 422 times on Bloomberg Surveillance Television, Trump boom curve steepening. Yes. We've been in a tight, tight trading zone. Let's begin. Which way are we going to break? Steeper or flatter on the 210 spread? I, th- I think what's uh, what's going to happen is, uh, you know, this is a very delicate call because we're actually uh, 210s right now is sort of mid-range. Uh, last year, uh, we were in the 210s flattener. We got in at the in November of 2015. We rode it like a broken pony right through the mm-hmm. summer into the uh, into the early autumn. Greenspan's old-fashioned quit ratio. He used to talk about 1996-97. That thing flashed all <clears throat> kinds of crazy signals in early October of 20, saying, get out of the and flattener. And you See the steepener and, and right said, there. And then we jumped in. We, we closed. We orderly closed out of the flatter. Is, jumped into the steepener about two weeks before Trump came in. And then it just okay. broke crazy Is the steep. difference in yield between the 10-year yep. and the 2-year... Is it about Washington and Trump economics, or there's something else going on? It's it's a uh, it's it's basically uh, you know it's a Fed view on the one hand and how the Fed will conduct things uh, you know in terms of policy normalization and so on. So it's a Fed thing on the front end. On the back end, it's a story about underlying growth. Can the stimulus, you know, the fiscal stimulus, get the economy going again, get it going faster back to 3% and that kind of stuff, return inflation back 2% or higher? Can the stimulus do that? And then on the other hand, it's also kind of this big global positioning thing because, as you know, I uh, work at Mitsubishi, uh, MUFG ba- uh, mm-hmm. banking group, and we have, you know, tremendous cl- number of clients in all through Southeast Asia and all through Japan and so on. And, uh, you know, we, central banks there are all some of our bigger clients, and they have been massive buyers of dips for the last three to four years. Every pricing dip in 10 years or in seven years, they came in and bought that sector. And so now, uh, you know, the, because they can't get the yield elsewhere. So, uh, so now the question is, you have those three factors. Fed, how, you know, and like we watched the minutes yesterday, how ready are the, is the committee to start amping up and moving up the policy and mm-hmm. tightening and so on? Well, let's bring so that's one thing. Okay. And, then, yeah. and then it's, can we get the growth going again? And right. then will our foreign guys step away and then wait to reload okay. or what will they do? <clears throat> let's bring in Francine Laquan London. Francine? Yeah, John, what do you make of when the Fed will actually hike? So I'm looking at Mohamed Delaria yeah. and his latest piece, his latest tweet, and he says, look, the market are definitely, definitely getting this wrong. The markets imply probability of a March rate increase it's are really too low. low. Yeah, yeah, I would, uh, we, we, we would agree with that. So our, our view, you know, the minutes are very interesting because, you know, you have to know where the mindset of the, minute, of the committee is and what kind of signals they're trying to communicate. So what's really unusual is the participants again, we're more hawkish than the committee. So the participants, the non you know, the, co- the total group, which includes non-voters, they came out and said many of them saw, you know, a basis for raising the Fed funds rate fairly soon. But then when it came to the committee, the, the, voting, the voting committee, they said only one was thinking relatively soon. And they said many members, many of the voters said, thought that they had ample time to respond to inflation pressures because right. they only think inflation is right. going to come back to 2% gradually and over the medium term. Our models are saying, no, 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 no. You're going to be over 2% in inflation by early May. So okay. whether you, so May, the May meeting should be in play. And if Greenspan were running the Fed, you know, uh, we were all sort of groomed on Greenspan and so on. So if Greenspan was running the Fed, his quit ratio pointing to stronger wage growth this year, next year, and into 2019, that's flashing signals saying, you know, you should start moving the market up. 
Uh, and Greenspan always liked okay. to move sooner, not later. John, so, you just uh, talked about models. Give me a model for GDP if yeah, nothing yeah. bad happens and GDP with a trade war against China. Okay, so we're th we were thinking, uh, you know, this was a very unusual election. And, you know, if you just step away and kind of look at it the way an investor would. If, if we were poised to grow at 2.1, 2.2% this year, if Hillary won, so regardless of what your viewpoint was or anything, because we were due for it, we had to restock inventories, business capex was turning around, underlying you know, momentum in the housing market, consumer, everything was saying we're growing 2-1, 2-2 this year if, mm -hmm. Trump, if Trump doesn't win and if Hillary's in and she does more of her income transfers and so on. We're still growing 2-1, 2-2 this year and probably around 2 to 2-1 in, in 2019. Now you get uh, some promises of tax reform and fiscal infrastructure spending, which, by the way, we, we desperately need. This has been the weakest spending recovery on, on government spending yeah, but under, in, in but, 50, okay, 60 but, years. But, John, you're but, so good. But if you good. get that, okay. then, then you're looking at 2.5, 2.6 this okay. year and 2.9 next year. Okay. I, I like the way you frame that. Let me go back to the mathiness of this. Consumption, investment, government, right, right. throw in net exports. Right. Which partial differential matters to you and getting to a better economy for all Americans. When, is if you, it if you, just goose more consumption? If you, if you, no, no, no. It wouldn't be because consumer has actually, uh, of all the components of GDP, uh, of domestic demand, consumer has been the outperformer. So, uh, and, and housing market has been pretty decent. What has been so horribly weak has been business, as Chairman Green, former Chairman Green, would say, it's business spending on long-term plant and equipment, which directly influences Is it gone abroad? Productivity. Is it global? It's, it's gone. It's, it's definitely moved away because it's, you look at the CapEx on equipment, extremely weak recovery. This recovery Where is versus it, every recovery. It's, it's Asia and Mexico. It's also uh, elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So very, very weak there. The second thing is business spending on plant, on factories, okay. on office space, also <clears throat> extremely got, weak. So got, as Greenspan says, the key question is is to ask policymakers should be asking themselves why okay. are businesses unwilling to make these long-term commitments to America, but they're willing to spend the money abroad? Well, That's like, what Greenspan argues, okay. and I think he's right. Well, and as, they may discuss that in Mexico City today, folks, or Michael McKee there. I've got time for one more uh, question. There is a number of houses. Yeah, yeah who suggests the 10-year will yeah. be where it is, even go higher, yeah, we're and then roll higher. over to a new low disinflation yeah, yeah. So, rate. <laughs> yes. I would be honored if you would comment on that. Okay, I think, you know, I think the, th the thing is, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to look at things from, you know, we've, we've, for the last several years, last seven or eight years, we've looked at things structurally and cyclically. And the cycle we thought was going to be is an abnormally soft cycle. And structurally, we kept seeing all these problems in the labor force. We still see the problems and the challenges in the labor force, very difficult to solve. Uh, some of them are aging, some of them are education, lots of things to talk about. That, we got a whole segment. But so structurally, but cyclically, if we just get things going, you know, uh, and it doesn't take much, you know, to do the, the, the GDP calculus doesn't take much mm -hmm. to get us to two and a half to three percent GDP. It really doesn't take much. You could just do infrastructure okay. spending. So we would think yields <clears throat> move up. But I did. I did. One of my coworkers from my, my old days back in Merrill. I just sent. He used to sit next. to We had a rate lab group there, and I just sent him something. I said, Walter. I said, you know, you're the tech guy. You sat next to me. I did this stuff. We had this crazy group. We were good. And right. I was like, you know, you know, where you think it's <clears> going to go low? There's, but there are people who are thinking ten year yields could go back to one point three. I think it's going to be hard unless you get something crazy okay. happen in Europe. Well, you may get that. And you may okay. get it. Okay. Or, we got to leave know, it there. Global, John Herman, thank you flow. so much with, uh, uh, with Mitsubishi UFJ.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.